If you have a Bible, I would love for you to open up with me to Mark chapter 10. We're going to begin reading uh, and look forward throughout Mark uh, in our time together this evening. Just a short time uh, in God's Word. I I do appreciate uh, Lindsay, Greg, and and Callie for uh, reading God's Word for us already, showing us how the Old Testament predicted and previewed this day. But Mark tells us the story of that day, and he gives us the background for how everything led up to that day. Mark chapter 10, we've read this scripture recently, verse 42 through 45. Jesus signals a change in his approach as his disciples uh, near Jerusalem about a week before Good Friday. Jesus says to the disciples, he called them to himself and said, you know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to be great among you shall be your servant and whoever of you desires to be first shall be a slave of all. Yet Jesus wasn't just telling them what to do. He would model this himself. Verse 45, for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and underline and highlight this next part to give his life a ransom for many. And if there ever is an understatement, it's that word many, because there's no way to quantify, there's, there's no way, uh, to, there's no adjective that's going to describe all who have been blessed, all who have been, have had their lives changed by what the cross teaches us. About a week before Good Friday, Jesus directs his movement towards Jerusalem. And when asked, why are we going? These are his words. He signaled to his followers that his purpose was different than what they maybe assumed or had hoped for. Just stopping and consider the implications of these words that came out of Jesus' mouth. The first shall be last. Great ones must be servants of all. The Son of Man will give his life a ransom for many. He was talking about his destiny just a week away. He, the alpha of all creation, the first and preeminent of all, would refuse the crown, the power, and the praise and take on a Roman cross, considered worse than any last place. He would take on the form of a servant and die a death worse than a slave and bear a cross as an act of advocacy and substitution. The son of man, holiness with human hands, the word of God made flesh would give his life as a ransom for every sinner that had or would ever live. What does that mean exactly? He would die a death that we deserve to die. He would pay a price that we could not afford to pay. But that prompts the question, why did we or why do we deserve death? What was the price that we couldn't pay? Well, this all began, of course, in the beginning, God made humans in his image. He gave them everything. He promised them everything. He gave them an option, however, to prove that obedience is what produces true joy. They weren't programmed to serve. They were given a free will. To emphasize the joy found in obedience, God highlighted the consequences and the cost of disobedience. In Genesis 2, verse 15, the Lord commanded Adam, you shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Somewhere in the divine realm of creation, there had been a tear, a rebellion against God by his own angelic beings. Leading the charge was a fallen angel called the devil. God allowed him into the garden again to emphasize the joy found in obedience. Satan came to tempt Adam and Eve with disobedience. He came into the paradise with a line of temptation. Take and eat 
In doing so, they were emptied of their relationship with God. However, they did not die. God spared their life. Now, they may have died in a spiritual sense. Yes, of course, they were separated from God. But did they die? No. They were covered in animal skin, maybe lamb skin, establishing a promise that would be echoed by Abraham and again by Moses. God would provide a lamb in our place. Cursed by sin, banished from God's presence, mankind wandered under the weight of bondage. God promised to ransom them with a lamb. As time would go on, God called out a certain people through whom he would bring this lamb. Israel, the children of Abraham, would be allowed to go through and experience things that would portray the entire world's condition and point to the whole world's redemption. Before establishing them as a nation, God allowed them to be taken captive as slaves. Under an evil empire called Egypt, ruled by a tyrant called Pharaoh, yet Pharaoh had a different name. Symbolized by the insignia on his crown, he was known as the Serpent King. The Serpent King invited Israel to be guests of honors in the land, first saying, take and eat of my table. But after a number of years, they went from being guests to slaves, from honored to humiliated. You can't trust serpents. You can't trust serpent kings. Especially when they invite you to take and eat because their drink and their bread are bitter poison. God raised up a deliverer 400 years later named Moses who stood before the serpent king demanding that God's people be freed. God brought judgment on the serpent king sending a death angel to take from the firstborn of the land but he would ransom his own people with a lamb which died in the place of their own firstborn. But this was merely a Passover. It wasn't true or full salvation. Their sin was still outstanding They were still under the curse as proven by their history. After this, if you know the Old Testament, a multi-layered, convoluted sacrificial system was given meant to remind people of the ongoing curse, pointing to a coming lamb. Israel needed more than a substitute. Israel needed a savior. As time would pass, no matter how many hundreds of thousands of lambs were slaughtered year after year, Passover after Passover, sin continued to dominate and doom them. Sin ruined life after life. It destroyed dreams. It ended lives. It tarnished legacies. God's response to this was conflicted. His love was in agony over his precious creation, but his wrath burned hot against sin. God's wrath is an expression of his love, angry at what sin was doing to his world, in agony over what sin was doing through his own people. The only solution was judgment. Adam was responsible, yet God pushed his penalty down the road. And our lives were in Adam, and when God spared Adam, Adam's guilt spread to us, and so did sin. So thus, humanity deserved judgment, yet God's mercy persisted. God desired better for us, yet our sin persisted. Sin had to be atoned for, but what was God waiting for? His righteous wrath was the only thing that could properly judge and eliminate sin. However... He wasn't willing to punish the people responsible for it. But all that did was persist the problem. We see the heart of God weighing the options through time. His love for us kept sparing us, yet he wasn't ignoring or winking at sin. Remember, he promised a lamb. 
But the Jews were stuck in this cycle of Passover year after year, never actually finding relief from their sin, never experiencing fellowship with God. The veil reminded them that they could not get to God. They lived in fear, insecurity, and in condemnation. Yet then Jesus came and he changed everything. He brought God near, he made God known, he gave them faith and confidence, yet he did all this in advance of this day that would make this truly and fully accessible, not just for his generation, not just for Israel, but for the whole world. The night before he died, he gathered his disciples around a table for traditional Passover meal, but his liturgy and his preamble that night were far from traditional. If you look over at Mark 14, Jesus, that night, the Thursday night before Good Friday gathers the disciples in an upper room around a table. And the scripture says in verse 22, as they were eating the meal, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them and said, take, eat, this is my body. He took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. This is not a symbol of the lamb in Egypt. This is not a symbol of the bread that Moses' generation ate in haste that night when they crossed the Red Sea. This is a picture of me. Can you imagine how audacious this must have, came from his, must have seen coming from his mouth? Can you imagine how much this shook the room? This is not our history. This is not our tradition. This is not the Passover lamb. This is not what Moses taught you. This is me. Take and eat. The serpent once said, take and eat, and it poisoned the world. The Savior now said, take and eat, and it would pardon and purify the world. What the serpent tempted with and emptied us, the Savior promised us and would fill us. Sin's curse demanded blood. The Savior's cure would provide blood. Later that night, as Jesus prayed, another cup would be placed in front of him. It was as if he heard a cry from heaven, take this cup and drink all of it. Jesus wrestled with this choice. What was it all about? Well, we get an insight of it over in Mark 14, verse 32. When he goes to a garden, a sanctuary that was his private place of prayer, where he would talk to God like a son does to a father. He asked the disciples to sit while he prayed and pray with him. But the scripture says in verse number 33 that he became to be troubled and deeply distressed. He said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little farther and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. What cup? Not the cup that he offered the disciples. He was offering them that because of what he was about to do with this cup. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will be done. See, to provide us the cup of grace, Jesus would have to drink the cup of wrath. To provide us forgiveness from sin, Jesus would face the penalty for our sin. He would hang on a cross where he would drink every last drop of God's wrath for those who would believe, for those who would not believe, even for those who could not believe. What Jesus experienced on the cross was beyond horrifying. The sun quit shining. The world stopped turning in disbelief and in sorrow. God in a body, holiness in human form, was pummeled with judgment due to all sin. He was perfect. He survived it. 
because he was a worthy sacrifice. A living sacrifice, satisfying God's wrath, loosening sin's chokehold on creation. He gave up his spirit to bring final judgment on death and the grave. Sin causes suffering for us all and through us all, yet Jesus suffered once for all. Sin deserves judgment and Jesus was judged for us all as us all. Sin creates separation. He experienced separation from God so that we might be united with him. There's another thing going on here, though. Sin stripped Adam and Eve of their dignity. It exposed their nakedness and their shame, and God clothed them temporarily. The night that Jesus was arrested, an anonymous follower of his is exposed for the coward he most certainly was, down in verse 51. The only gospel that tells us this little information is Mark. 1451 says, a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his waist, his, around his naked body. And the young man laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from the naked. Who was this man? Why is it included in this story? Most believe, and I believe it to be true, this is Mark. Why would Mark include his own point of shame in his own story? Because Mark's reason for writing this story is to tell you and to tell me, no matter how obvious and apparent our shame is, no matter how grievous and heinous our sin is, no matter how heavy our guilt is, no matter how bad we are, this Friday has good news for us. Yes, we are naked in our sin. Yes, we are cowards in our flesh. Yes, we abandon and forsake God in all that we do. Yet this Friday is not bad, it is good. As every follower of Jesus abandoned him, every religious figure mocked him, every politician blasphemed him, Jesus absorbed every sin of every sinner. All of us naked, ashamed, guilty, Every coward, every self-righteous, every heathen of that day represents us all. Every lie, every denial, every curse, every betrayal, every insult cast on Jesus embodies all of our offenses to God. Yet Jesus withstood every one of them. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, he opened not his mouth. Like a Passover lamb, the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Over in Mark 15, verse 22, it says they brought him to the place of Golgotha. After a night of kangaroo court, lies and accusations, allegations that were not true, Jesus did not open his mouth to any of them. He came to the place called Golgotha, being led by the Roman soldiers, a place of the skull. They gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it because he wasn't going to numb the pain. He was going to bear all of it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. So when they brought him to this place, they stripped him naked. The son of God, holiness and human flesh, stripped naked in front of everybody. Laid on a cross of wood, nailed in his hands and his feet. For every one of us, naked and guilty in our sin, 
Jesus was stripped of his glory. He was stripped of his beauty. He was marred and afflicted for us. Suffering because of our unrighteousness, stripped of his glory, he absorbed our sins so that we might be clothed in his righteousness, emptied of our sin and atoned by his grace. We're all Mark, exposed, humiliated, yet Jesus died for us all, embracing us all. Down in verse 29, the people that watched this happen, those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads, saying, aha, you who destroyed the temple and build it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests mocked him with the scribes. He saved others himself he cannot save. But they were mistaken. He could have saved himself, but he chose not to. He chose to suffer for us. He chose to experience every bit of the pain, all of the wrath. He chose to save us because we could not save ourselves. The scripture says the darkness overwhelmed the land for three hours. Jesus was forsaken in our place, calling upon God in desperation, yet In verse 37, he cried out with a loud voice. He breathed his last breath and the veil of the temple was torn in two in that moment, in that instance. Every year with every Passover lamb, the veil remained because those lambs were mere substitutes. But this year, once and for all, a savior had come, a savior had died. Nothing stood between us and God anymore. All of our sin was laid on him. All of his grace was poured out to us. His blood atoned for our sin. His death defeated sin. He finished the cup of wrath and provides for us a better cup. The cup of God's grace, Jesus drank our cup so that we could have our sin removed. We can drink his cup so that our souls might be revived. Where there was wrath, there is now grace. Where there was death, there is now life. Where there was shame, there is now acceptance. The cup of wrath is off the table. A new cup has been prepared for us all to drink. Mercy overflows from it for us all to receive. What an incredible and what an overwhelming gift from God. And I can't talk about this without being filled with wonder and gratitude. I know we don't always think about the ramifications of our sin God's holiness and how Christ truly changed everything, but it does us well to consider this sobering message. This is God's love, willing to fight for us, fight sin for us, and bring mercy to us all through Jesus Christ. That is what is before you on this table tonight. Jesus drank our cup so that we might drink from his. The enemy tempted us all with something we thought would bring us life. And all it did was kill us. Jesus invites us with something that has been proven to be full of life. And it will absolutely save us. We're invited to know him, to trust in him, to rest in him, to have confidence in God always. His death on the cross is the perfect picture of God's love, a picture of God's mercy mercy and judgment, grace and wrath. God's love for us, both in his wrath against sin that frees us, his love for us, his mercy over sin to forgive us. The cup of wrath is off the table. Jesus drank it all and he said it is finished. So we can take a better cup. We can rejoice because we are free. We are forgiven. You know, church, I don't know how we, I don't know how anybody could turn away from this promise. 
Oh, that the taste of this vine and bread tonight would do our hearts. Change our hearts. What God supplied 2,000 years ago can be applied to your heart, be reapplied to your heart tonight. If we've trusted and believed, if we've confessed that Jesus died for our sin because of our sin, for our sin, we can receive forgiveness he supplied on Calvary. What God did 2,000 years ago on this day, he can bring forward in time to you tonight. The question for everybody is, do we really believe that? Do we live in light of that? When we look at the cross, do we see our sin and do we see our Savior? You know, if we trust in Jesus, when God sees us, he no longer sees our sin. He sees Jesus' blood. Why did Mark include this embarrassing story of being left naked as he denied and ran from Jesus? Because Mark knows deep down that's every one of us. If we would have been there that night, we would have been lucky to make it that far. But if we would have, we would have fled the scene, exposed for just the cowards and sinners we are. But Mark reminds you and reminds me that the story didn't end there. The story doesn't end in his shame, in his sin. The story goes on in Jesus bearing his sin, taking his shame, forgiving us all. And of course, we know that there's another part of the story to come a few days from now as Jesus accomplished salvation forgives us of our sin his resurrection will make a punctuation on it providing and promising you and I that we stand with God saved forgiven accepted and chosen and no one can pluck us out of his hand no one can take the blood away Lindsay's going to sing a song for us I hope as she sings tonight we'll consider where we stand with God And may it be known, because of the cross, there is no question where we can stand. Forgiven, saved, covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Exclusively provided on this day, 2,000 years ago. Only a God so good and so loving would look at a day so dark and so troubling and call it good for you and for me.
Yancey. Let's give the Lord a hand tonight. You know, Philip Yancey says that God did a risky thing by forgiving us ahead of time. God's promise from the cross is that no matter what you do, no matter what you go through, no matter who you become, Jesus is enough. The promise still stands tonight, and the promise is represented and signified, symbolized in the Lord's Supper that was established the night before Jesus' death. This no longer is the Passover meal for Christians. It is the body and blood of Jesus Christ poured out and broken for you and for me. It's fitting that we end this service tonight knowing that what happened 2,000 years ago still applies and still provides for us salvation. The exclusive provision is represented by these elements. You know, these promises, we come together as a church and celebrate and take from the table, but this decision is personal. This decision is individual. It's right that we as a church communally and collectively make a confession together before we take from the Lord's table. Uh, So, I will read the words of this confession together and then you can repeat after me in unison. Let's all stand as we do this together. Lord, as we receive from your table, we marvel at the cross and we wonder at your love. We believe Jesus' death is the exclusive remedy for our sin. We hold these reminders as the greatest treasures of this world. We receive from your hand the body and blood of Christ. His body broken for ours and his blood poured out for us. You were stripped so that we might be clothed. You bled so that we might be covered. In Christ alone, we are saved. We stand before you amazed and in awe of this amazing gift. What a good Friday it is to be able to hold this representation of the, bre- of the body of Christ and of the blood of Christ. So let's take from the bread a picture of the Lord's body broken for us that we might be made whole. Let's take it together this evening. And now a picture of the Lord's blood that washes us from sin and covers us in salvation. Let's drink from the Lord's vine. Thank God for this unspeakable and this glorious gift. Hallelujah, what a Savior we have. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for this Good Friday. We know that it shouldn't have been good for us. We should have been punished for our sin. We deserve much worse. Yet Jesus stepped in our place. He wasn't just a substitute pushing it off. He was a Savior finishing the work saving us once and for all. Hallelujah, what a Savior we have. God, I pray you would remind us tonight with the songs we've sing, the word we've heard, the elements that we've taken. Lord, renew us and revive us in our salvation. If there's somebody out there listening tonight that doesn't know Jesus as their Savior, 
God, I pray you might would show them and reveal to them that you did this for them. And Lord, help us, your people, go and tell the world over the next couple of days that your resurrection in a few days caps off this promise, punctuates this promise, spreads the power to the ends of the earth. Father, may your people give you praise and glory for everything you've done and all that you will do. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.